0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Now we continue in our worship of our God by looking at his word together. And I would invite you to, if you have a Bible, you can have your thumb in Psalm 35, about the middle of your Bible. And we'll spend most of our time there in Psalm 35. We'll be looking at other scriptures as well. And today's sermon is called reading imprecatory psalms. And our example today is Psalm 35. Before we get to that, I just want to ask you a question. Do you have any enemies? Think about that. Do you have any enemies? Well, if you're a Christian, you do, whether you realize it or not. First Peter 5, 8 says, your enemy, the devil. So you do have enemies. Some people have a hard time thinking they have enemies. They want everybody to like them. But that's just not realistic. So at a minimum, if you're a Christian, in answer to that question, do you have enemies? The devil is your enemy. Another question is, do you have people who don't like you? They're your enemy. They hate you. They despise you. Not only do they despise you, they mock you. They revile you. Maybe they harass you. Do you have anybody that's harassing you currently or has harassed you in the past? It's a good question to think about. For some of you, that may be true today. And you're being harassed for various reasons. Specifically, I want to focus in on the question of, are you being harassed because of your faith? Are you being harassed because you're a believer? Are you being harassed because you're a Christian? I've talked to some of you, and I know that some of you are being harassed in the workplace because of your faith, because you are a Christian. And you have to face that week after week, day after day. Or there are some unbelievers who surround you? They just despise. They hate Christians. Some of you have talked to me about you go to either a public high school or a public university, secular university, and you've been harassed or despised there when people found out you were a Christian. And then others of you are maybe being harassed for different reasons because of your faith. I'm not being. I'm not talking about being harassed for other reasons, um, but I really want to sp- focus on being harassed. And despise because of your faith because you love jesus that's just a reality uh, jesus promised us that if you love me the world will hate you that's a promise that's john 15 because they hated me they will hate you so i'm not i'm not talking about your christian mother-in-law you don't get along with I'm talking about a different kind of not getting along and enemies those who despise you because of your faith, because you're a Christian. There are are people who despise and hate you, that maybe you're not even aware, that don't even know you personally. I think of ISIS as a real threat in the world. ISIS, uh, these radical Muslim fundamentalists who are hell-bent on murdering and slaughtering people that don't think and believe like they do, and they're doing that around the world right now, murdering Christians, Day after day, invading cities, beheading people, raping seven-year-old girls repeatedly. It's in the news if you're paying attention. It's brutal. Savagery. And if we just happened to live in a different part of the world, you'd find out they hate you. They hate you because you're from America. They hate you because, especially because you call yourself Christian and you believe Jesus is God. And if you made that known and you were around them, you would lose your life today savage brutal it's part of the world so the answer to the question is yes people hate you you have enemies as do i if you're a believer if you're a christian the question for us practically is well how do we respond how do we respond especially to maybe people in the workplace or at school or in our neighborhood or my neighbor they don't like me because they know i'm a christian because i go to church there are different ways to respond to people who hound you, harass you. Maybe they write you nasty emails, mean text messages. They post blogs about you, et cetera, et cetera. They're on the war path to smear you. It's a reality for being a Christian. And you can respond in a lot of different ways. The Bible gives us different responses, how to respond to people like that in light of the fact that we're believers and the world is filled with people who hate God because we love Jesus, they hate Jesus. And because we love Jesus, they will also hate us because we love Jesus. And so in answering that question, we're going to look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35, representative of what I call the imprecatory Psalms. And follow along with me as I just read the first ten verses. No, the first nine verses. We're not going to be able to cover all 28 verses. But this psalm can be broken up really into three parts, verses 1 through 9, 10 through 18, and 19 through the end. And it's just kind of three cycles. So if we read the first nine verses, we'll get a good sense of this psalm because that same cycle is repeated two other times in the rest of the psalm. This is written by David, so it's about 1,000 B.C., When David wrote this, he was the king of Israel. Samuel, God's man, the prophet maker, Samuel anointed David as king, as the legitimate king over the theocracy of Israel, replacing Saul, who was a disobedient king, the first king of Israel. David becomes the second king of Israel over the nation of Israel, and 1 Samuel tells us how that happened. Samuel anoints David on behalf of God. And then David literally, formally, legally, politically becomes the representative of the people of Israel. He represents God to the people as David is the earthly king now. And in many ways, David represents the people unto his God. So David becomes a human monarch. And Saul, who David replaced, Saul, the first king of Israel, became very disobedient and belligerent. And even though God anointed David as the rightful king to replace Saul, Saul would not let go of the reins. He wanted to maintain power. And became very sinful to the point where he tried many times to kill King David, the rightful king. And he had power of the army. And Saul persisted in chasing David around his country and even out of his country, trying to kill David, the rightful king. And so that's kind of the historical context here. David is being persecuted. He is literally being chased. He is, His life is in jeopardy. He's running through the wilderness, through the desert, hiding in caves. He's just got a few people that are kind of helping him. And Saul has the entire military behind him. Trying to hunt David down and kill him. David, the rightful king. There are many times, David's going through just a whirlwind of emotions from fear, great anxiety, at times depression, on the run, crying out to his God God, you anointed me as king, I'm the rightful king. Why are they trying to get, why are my own people, my own nation, trying to kill me? My own friend, Saul, trying to kill me. And it was during these times where David wrote many of the psalms. And this is one of them. This is called a psalm of lament. Um, Some would call it an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of rescue. So that's David's mindset. That's the historical background. Let's just read the first nine verses. Here is David. This is a prayer. This is a psalm. It may have been that he turned it into a song. He was a musician. And God preserved this for us. 3,000 years old. It's amazing. 3,000 years that we might read it and be blessed as well. And David says, this is the new American standard. Contend, O Yahweh. The New King James says, plead my cause, O Lord. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Wow. Wow. Here's King David, a man after God's own heart, a believer. He loves the Lord. And he is putting down in a formal prayer, asking God to fight against his enemies. It doesn't sound very Christian, some would say. Doesn't sound very loving. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield or take hold of shield and armor and rise up. For my help, so David is picturing God as a warrior. First, it's God is like his lawyer in verse one, defend me in court, plead my case, and then he has the imagery of God going from lawyer to now military warrior. Take up your armor, God, and fight on my behalf. Fight my enemies. Fight to the death. It's pretty radical. This is a prayer. So David prays to God. You ever pray this way? Should we pray this way? Fight against those who fight? Shouldn't we pray the way Jesus said as he was hanging on the cross? Dying, being crucified. And his prayer was, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. That doesn't sound like this prayer. Those sound contradictory. They sound like they're in conflict. How should we pray, like David or like Jesus? Remember Matthew 5? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, take vengeance. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Do not retaliate. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, offer the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Not praying vengeance upon your enemies. Don't take retaliation on your pray for your enemies same thing with romans 12 says the same thing. pray for your enemies that's a stark contrast to what how david is praying here fight against those who fight against me take hold of uh, buckler and shield rise up verse draw also the spear or the uh, and the battle axe or the javelin to meet those who pursue kill them god kill my enemy that's literally what he's saying wow Say to my soul, I am your salvation. God, speak up on my behalf. Speak up on my defense. You're not just my lawyer. You're not just my a warrior. You're also my savior, defender. And then verses 4 through 8, uh, David literally prays and invokes retribution, physical retribution on his enemies. Listen, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Verse 5, let them be like shaft before the wind. With the angel of the Lord driving them on, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net before me. They tried to trap me with a net. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. Verse 8, let destruction come upon him unawares. Destroy them, God. Destroy my enemies who are hunting me down and let the net which he he had cast or catch himself into the very destruction. Let them fall. And then verse 9 is kind of crescendo of praise. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. My, this is a, a promise of praise. David is saying, God, if you do this on my behalf, I will praise you. Verse 9, my soul shall re- rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. He does that three times in the psalm where uh, he prays for retribution He pours out the evidence of the evil of his enemies. And then three times he makes this pledge or promise of rejoicing and praise. God, if you do this, I will rejoice. He does that in verse 9. The other one is in verse 18. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. God, if you do this upon my enemies, I will give you thanks in the great congregation before your people. I will praise you. I will exalt you. I will praise you among a mighty throng. And then he does it at the very end, verse 27, same thing, giving praise. Verse 28 and my tongue shall declare thy righteousness and thy praise all day long. God, if you do this, if you're faithful, if you defend me, if you take out my enemies, I will praise you. I will praise you among the people. So this is a great challenge for us. Wow, do we pray like Jesus who said forgive, or do we pray like David who called down the wrath of God against his enemies? And when people read the Bible, Especially in the psalms like this, they are confused. Why, why are these psalms written like this? So that's why I thought it would be a good opportunity uh, for us to do something maybe you've never done before, is heard a sermon on an imprecatory psalms. Maybe you didn't even know they were there. What do we do with these? We don't understand them properly. An imprecatory psalm, by the way, is what they're formally called. Imprecatory actually comes from a Latin word. I'm not a Latin scholar, but that's where it comes from. So it's not Greek or Hebrew or English. Imprecatory. And imprecatory in Latin uh, means to to invoke divine judgment on your enemies or really to call down a curse from God on your enemies. That's what Im- imprecation means. And so there are about 18 psalms that have been come to known as imprecatory psalms where David or whoever the psalmist is like in Psalm 69 is literally writing, praying to God, and then they wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and their prayers to Almighty God asking for vengeance, asking for uh, His justice, asking for His protection, asking sometimes even for His wrath towards their enemies. And then these imprecatory Psalms confuse a lot of people. They even confuse Christians. Unbelievers love the imprecatory Psalms critics of the bible skeptics because they just love to pounce on these imprecatory psalms and show us Christians how judgmental and mean and twisted and distorted and unloving your god is. Classic example would be Richard Dawkins the world famous atheist. He he just loves that. He 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 camps out on the imprecatory psalms to say Christians and religion and the bible just promotes hate. And here's his evidence. This isn't love, this isn't forgiveness, this isn't patience and kindness. This isn't virtue. And he, he says that the God of the Old Testament is a bloodthirsty, mean ogre who is vile, and we should have nothing to do with him. And that's how he attacks Christianity. But he doesn't have the ability to understand properly the Bible, and he doesn't have a proper understanding of God, and so he can easily distort the Scriptures. But he's persuasive. So that's one end of the spectrum of where you have an unbeliever who's a critic of the Bible distorting the imprecatory Psalms for their advantage undermine Christianity but you also have people who are Christians or maybe call themselves Christians who don't have a proper balance or understanding of how to read an imprecatory psalm or passages like it in the Bible and I I know Christians like this I've met Christians like this we will always have professed Christians Christians like this They, they gravitate towards these mean passages and then they Make that the dominant theme of Christianity or how they talk to people or unbelievers. And so when they go out to talk to unbelievers or witness to unbelievers, instead of giving a, a balanced presentation of the gospel, which is good news, they will go out and do imprecations to people, calling down the wrath of God on their head. And the evangelistic signs they'll hold on the street corner say things like, turn or burn. That's their message. And they literally think that represents the truth of the Bible, completely and in whole, when actually that's a distorted, unbalanced message. And when you talk and engage with them, they they quickly go to Psalm 5 or Psalm 35 or Psalm... Hey, this is how David did it. This is how he talked to unbelievers. Let God destroy my enemies. Let God destroy the wicked. God hates the wicked. And they just camp out and focus on that all the time so that's the only message the bible has to give and christians get caught up in this so that's a very myopic narrow unbalanced view of the bible it's there david is invoking the wrath of god on the head of his enemies no doubt he is calling upon their destruction true but we've got to understand it in the right way, so that's that 's the goal this morning. Just six principles to understand an imprecatory psalm like psalm thirty five psalm five psalm sixty nine or the eighteen imprecatory psalms that are there or there's other passages even in other uh, books of the Bible where you have imprecatory phrases or statements or paragraphs, even in the book of revelation there's some in the New Testament. How do we understand those properly? Is there a contradiction in the Bible with Jesus saying, "Be patient with your enemies and then david 's you know praying god 's wrath on your enemy. No, there's no contradiction. So let's go through these six principles and hopefully that will help you understand how to interpret the Bible. So really this has to do with hermeneutics, how you interpret the Bible properly. So these are good principles to keep in mind. How do we deal with imprecatory Psalms and statements of wrath? Uh, let's go through these. Point number one. We need to remember that all 150 Psalms are inspired by God, including the imprecatory Psalms, because some people would say, even professed christians and evangelicals would say that some of these imprecatory psalms aren't really inspired it was david was having a bad day or he was too depressed and it shouldn't have ended up in the bible and he misspoke and he was sinful and he was fallen and so we should disregard it and we shouldn't uh honor this as inspired and really it doesn't reflect the true heart of god it definitely doesn't reflect the spirit of jesus who was love 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 that's what they would say we would say no All 150 psalms belong in the Bible. All 150 psalms are inspired by God. So 2 Timothy 3.16, the apostle Paul wrote that verse as he was moved by the Spirit of God, and he said, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture came from God. And when Paul wrote that, he had all 150 psalms. So when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, he was actually referring to his Old Testament that he had in its entirety which included the imprecatory psalms. So the Apostle Paul believed that Psalm 35, Psalm 5, Psalm 69, the imprecatory psalms were just as equally inspired as the nice and happy ones. And that should be our attitude. Every book of the Bible, every chapter is inspired by God. It came from the mouth of God and the mind of God, and that includes Psalm 35. So Psalm 35 needs to be read, read, We need to pray through it, meditate upon it. We need to glean from it, learn from it. And it needs to be added to our complete worldview of how we understand Christianity, God, and the Bible. Maybe some of us are just too narrow, too myopic. And we need to broaden our understanding of what God is really like. There are some Christians who just want to emphasize love. God is just love, grace, and mercy. God is patient. God is loving. God is forgiving. They don't want to talk about God's wrath. Some Christians have even gone on record to write and say, well, you know what? This is is typical of a man who's frustrated, you know? It's because David was a man. He was a warrior. He was a bloodthirsty uh, soldier. A man, a woman would never do this. A woman would never say this. A Christian woman would never have this kind of understanding of God towards her. And then I'm thinking, no. Have you ever read 1 Samuel 2 and Hannah's prayer, one of the greatest prayers in the entire Bible? Hannah, woman of God. Tender, gracious, patient, loving, soft, sensitive woman of God. Her chapter is worse than this one. I would challenge you ladies to read First Samuel chapter 2 sometime. Read through that whole prayer and say, do, do I as a woman of God ever pray like this? Do I ever pray with the substance and the fully informed revelation of God like Hannah as a woman of God? Because you should. So it's not just chalking it off to the fact that, uh, David, he, uh, he's a man, that's what men are like. Not at all. So, first thing to understand when we're reading any scripture, even when it's difficult, because there are difficult passages, like, you get into Revelation 14, and Revelation 16, and Revelation 19, and Revelation 20, and God's wrath and being poured out, and destruction, and blood, and splattering, and death. It's like, wow, is this Christian? Does this fit into my worldview? Should, should I believe this? Is this really how God thinks and believes and operates? Is hell real? Is it a physical place? Is it literal? Is it forever? Is it eternal? I can't even conceive of that. How does that comport with a a God who is love and forgiving? Well, we need to incorporate it. It's true. So all scripture is inspired by God, and these psalms are. Point number two. Every passage you read, every verse you read, every book you read in the Bible has a context. So uh, point number one was these psalms are inspired, and then point number two is they have a historical context. So... Psalm 35 and the imprecatory Psalms that sound kind of mean and offend people and they offend the sensibilities even of Christians. We need to understand, they need to be understood and interpreted in a proper context. There's a historical context. There's a literary context. We need to understand that when we interpret the Bible. A word in the Bible only has its meaning dependent and determined by the context. A chapter is informed by its context. Context determines meaning. Very important. And we can't pull it out of context. So uh, the imprecatory psalms have a historical context. I've already given you some of the historical context for Psalm 35. We cannot replicate everything about Psalm 35 in our own prayer life because it needs to be understood in context. Uh, Here are some of the historical features that make us understand that this is a little different than how we should pray in every facet. First of all, it's a psalm of David, okay? Okay. David wrote about 73 Psalms in the old, in the, in the Psalter. At this time, David was king. He was the king of Israel. You are not king, I am not king. That's very important. David was king, anointed personally by God's prophet. That hasn't happened to us. There's nobody on planet earth that that is true of. David was king over a theocracy that was literally on earth, the nation of Israel. There is no theocracy on planet earth right now. So we are living under different conditions. The theocracy of Israel that was given the law of God to Moses as their constitution over that nation. And it was a theocracy. In other words, the religious components, the civil components, the political components, the social components, the military components were all woven together as one under their constitution, the 633 laws that God gave through Moses under the theocracy of Israel. God was king. David or the king of Israel was the representative on behalf of God. And it was the nation was to be run accordingly. There is no theocracy of God today on planet Earth. Now we have the church of God, which primarily right now is a spiritual entity, not a political one on Earth. Someday it will be political. But primarily a spiritual entity. Not a military entity. Someday it will be a military entity on Earth. The church right now is a spiritual entity where our domain and our dominance is not literally physically on the earth. Someday it will be literally on the earth. So it's different. We're not under the theocracy on earth right now. So it's a spiritual reality, primarily the church. Our king is Jesus. And then there are governments delegated with authority by God to oversee their nations. And so here in America, we have... A, a secular civil government that is separate from the church and they should not intermingle. And God has given authority to the political secular government to oversee this nation with righteousness and vengeance according to the law. We know that from Romans 13. First Timothy 1 and another passages also in Peter. So there's a historical context. David was king. He was the king over the a theocracy which we don't live in today. Also, as David is praying, he was anointed by God. And when God anointed Saul, God promised to protect Saul from his enemies. 1 Samuel 15 and other places. So when God anointed David, God promised to protect the king, the anointed one. And he warned the people, do not touch my anointed one. And David understood that. David knew that. David knew that to the point where even in 1 Samuel 24, David had been anointed king. Saul had been set aside. But Saul refused to step aside. And he's usurping David's power. And he's trying to kill David. And weeks and weeks and months and months go by. And David is just exasperated. He's tired. He's fearful. He's depressed. He's scared. He thinks he's going to die. Uh, he's running from Saul. And then they get to one point in 1 Samuel 24 where David hides in a cave in Engedi. I've been there in Israel. And Saul was on David's tail. And he had to go to the bathroom. This is what 1 Samuel 24 says. So King Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. Little did he know that David was in there. It's dark. There's no lights. David's in the back. He can see the shadow of Saul. Saul lifts up his robe. David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. He could have killed him with the sword right there on the spot. David's friends wanted him to do that. David spared Saul. Saul left. And then David told his, his men, and he showed him the piece of robe. Here is king, here's Saul's robe, and I have no right to kill him because he was the anointed of God. God anointed him as king one day. I don't have the right to take personal vengeance upon God's anointed. And so that was the mindset. And David knew also that he was anointed. And he was to be protected by God. He was God's man. And so that's part of the historical context of understanding how David is praying. David understands that he leads the theocracy of Israel. He he is responsible for protecting his people, his nation from evil people that were illegitimate, that were violating the covenant that God gave through Moses. So part of what David is praying here is protection based on the covenant that God gave Moses and his people in Deuteronomy, where there were curses that were to be given if the covenant was violated. So his prayers are in keeping with the word of God articulated in the covenant that Moses gave. If you do this, God will curse you this way. If you do this, God will curse you this way. And that's part of what David is doing. He knows scripture. He knows the law of Moses. He's enacting the law. He's enforcing the law. David really isn't seeking. This is very important. He's not seeking personal revenge in this entire psalm. And That's where people get confused. If you read it carefully. David is asking for legal justification, not personal justification. As a matter of fact, contend the first word in the psalm is a very specific legal term. This is based on the law. This is objective standard. This is not personal retaliation. So David is seeking legal justification and protection based on an objective standard that God had given through the law, based on his objective role that is rightfully his given to him as the king over the nation. So there's legal justification he's asking for. He's also asking for political justification or protection because that's what the government is supposed to do is provide political protection. Romans 13 is clear. Even though we are Christians, we're not part of the government, we have access to government, which God has ordained for our protection, for our good, for our safety. And so if somebody's coming to my house with a gun or whatever, and they're trying to kill me or whatever, I have the right to get political protection. I can call the police. I can call 911. Uh, if a foreign country is coming to, ta- if North Korea decides to attack us, if ISIS comes in and tries to attack us, our recourse, we have political resources that God has ordained, Romans 13, to protect us as a nation and as a people. For our good. That's very clear in scripture. And that's what David is doing. He's asking for legal protection, political protection. David, by the way, was the rightful military leader of his, he was the uh, commander in chief of his nation, God's people. And as a right, he could speak accordingly with that kind of authority. And so he's not speaking of personal retaliation, but also military protection, military justice. David was not a pacifist. Guess what? God is not a pacifist. Guess what? Jesus is not a pacifist. Guess what? The Bible is not pacifistic. Just read Revelation 19 about Jesus and you will see God is not a pacifist and neither is Jesus. So David is asking for legal protection, political protection, military protection that was rightfully ordained by God. This is not a personal vendetta against his enemies at all. That's why this is totally consistent with Jesus in the New Testament, and also Paul, in those passages where it says, don't take personal retaliation. So Matthew 5, somebody slaps you in the cheek, turn to him in the other cheek. Don't take personal retaliation. That's what Jesus was saying. And at the same time, Jesus and Paul and the New Testament writer said, you can take legal recourse, Legal, you can seek legal protection. You're walking down the street and somebody steals something from you or they punch you or whatever. You don't retaliate on a personal level you can call the police and seek legal recourse, and that is ordained by God. They complement one another. So don't seek personal retaliation, but we have other ways to protect ourselves. And that's what's being modeled by David here. So very important. This is probably the most important point here is you've got to understand the context, and here it's understanding the historical context so that you understand what's going on of how David is praying. Number three, uh, these imprecatory psalms, they reveal God's character. I referred to this a little bit earlier. There are Christians who like to, when you ask them, what is God like or what are the attributes of God? Oh, God is love. Love, love, love. Unbelievers gravitate towards that one, too. They throw that in our face all the time. Sinners, they love that one. Oh, God's forgiving and love. It's okay that I did this dirty deed. God is forgiving, patient, and love. Well, that's true. But that's not all that God is. So we can't have a a narrow-minded, shallow, superficial understanding of the person and the character of God. And someone that has a shallow, misguided, ill-informed perspective of God can't understand Psalm 35 because they see David saying, let destruction come upon him. Wow, that's mean. Or verse 24, Asking God to judge. That's mean. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of love. That's not the God of Jesus. Well, actually it is. Because God is not just love. God is more than that. We we need to understand God in the fullness of His attributes. So when we pray to God, worship God, it's not just, God, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. God, you're the forgiving God, you're the great. We also, when was the last time you prayed to God, worship God for being a righteous God, a vengeful God, a wrathful God, a holy God, a punishing God, an angry God, a jealous God. Really? When was the last time he did that? Hannah did that in First Samuel 2. She worshiped God in his fullness for being a loving, merciful, patient, providing God. And at the same time, she recognized that he was a jealous, sovereign, judging, wrathful, holy, vengeful God. <laughs> First Samuel 2, 6, Hannah said this, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. And she was right. So we need to have a fully informed, fully orbed view of the character of God. God is love, 1 John 4. God is patient, 2 Peter 3, 9. That's true, very patient. God is kind, Romans 2, 4. Nahum chapter 1, but God is jealous. He is jealous for himself. He's jealous for his holiness. He's jealous for his name. He's jealous for Jesus. He's jealous for the Holy Spirit. He's jealous for his own people. He's jealous for you. If you're a Christian, God is jealous for you on your behalf. He doesn't like people messing with you. Really? You can take comfort in that. God loved David and God was jealous for David. God did not want anybody harassing and messing with David. And that's also what's going on. David knew that God was a jealous God. David knew he belonged to God. And he's praying accordingly. God, protect me. I am yours. You are a jealous God. God was also jealous for the nation of Israel. The apple of his eye. And David knows that. And David is praying. David's responsible for that nation that is precious to God. And that's how he's praying. God, you are jealous for your people. You're jealous for this nation. And all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God makes it known that he protects his own. He's jealous. When somebody messes with you, God sees it every time. He doesn't always respond the same way. He doesn't always respond with the same timing. But it does not go unnoticed. When somebody harasses you, mocks you, hurts you because you love Jesus, that is noted by God and on a very personal level. You belong to him. He owns you. He loves you. His jealousy. Uh, God is also holy. Revelation 15.4. That has to do with he is sinless and cannot tolerate sin. He is sinless and must punish sin. That's what holiness is. A lot of people like to say, well, the God in the Old Testament is different than the God in the New Testament. Well, what do you mean? Well, the God in the Old Testament, boy, he's out there commanding people to kill babies and kill women. And he's angry all the time. And in the New Testament, he's love, love, love. That's a gross misrepresentation of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same God in the Old Testament as is in the New Testament. There's just as much love about God in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when I read through the Old Testament, every time I read through the Old Testament and I get to the book of Deuteronomy, as I'm going through Deuteronomy, I am reminded and surprised of the portrait of God as a God of love in the book of Deuteronomy. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind. He is provider. It just comes up over and over again. That's in the Old Testament. Just a loving, gracious, patient, kind, forgiving God. And sometimes when I read the New Testament, like 1 Thessalonians, actually 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, whoo, hot chapter, Revelation, almost the entire book, and many other passages. Or Jesus, Matthew 23, Yo! whoa. There's the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the vengeance of God in the New Testament. So the Old Testament, New Testament, they don't contradict. They are perfectly synchronized because God doesn't change. In the fullness of his attributes, he always manifests himself for who he is. And we need to understand him for who he is. So he's a holy God, Revelation 15, 4. He's a God of wrath and anger, Revelation 14, 10. Hebrews 12, verse 29, that chapter ends by saying our God is a consuming fire. What does a consuming fire do? It burns, it hurts, it destroys. That's God. That's his attitude towards sin. That's in the New Testament. Revelation 15:4. God is righteous. I mean, we could go on and on and add two dozen more attributes of God. We need to understand the God of the Bible and the fullness of his attributes and appreciate and worship him accordingly. He is a righteous God. So the imprecatory Psalms, like no other, reveal important characteristics about God that we need to be reminded of. He is a God of wrath, jealousy, and holiness. Number four about the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms, they complement the whole Bible. In other words, they're not anomalies. Oh, these 18 anomalies called the imprecatory Psalms. Wish they weren't in there. They're kind of embarrassing. My unbelieving friend next door, they won't want to read the Bible when they see that. I gotta hide that chapter from them. Hopefully they don't see that. No, they need to see it. That God is an angry God, a holy God, a fearful God. That's good to be afraid of God. He is holy. He is the judge. He is the creator. People, unbelievers should be afraid. They need to be rescued and saved. Fear is not, holy fear is not a bad thing for unbelievers. You don't need to be apologetic or embarrassed of the Bible. But the imprecatory Psalms, they complement the whole Bible. God's wrath can see and be seen in almost every book of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, in the fullness of his character. I I don't have time to go through the whole Bible, but I'll just go to the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible. Why these imprecatory psalms? Why calling vengeance down upon David's enemy? Why is that even necessary? Well, because people are evil and wicked. Do you know there are just incredibly heinous, evil, wicked, vile people in the world? Did you know that? There are. We need to be reminded of that. We've got to forget this goodness of humanity. Everybody's born good. Everybody's born with a neutral slate. No. People are born vile, evil, and wicked, separated from God. Sometimes we are so isolated as Christians, we don't have a real view of the wickedness that's out there. But the human soul, it is twisted and perverted on the inside from conception and birth. And that's why Jesus said you must be born again. You need to be changed and transformed because we are rotten to the core. And then as people grow older, that evil just manifests itself that's how the world is right now. You get, I don't know if you're watching the news, just how I mentioned ISIS earlier, is they're just going from city to city to city to city, pillaging and ravaging and decapitating and slaughtering people, raping incessantly little girls, videotaping it, posting it on the website for the whole world to see and celebrating it. It's just absolutely vile. We've never seen anything like it in the history of the world. And now even in America, we got... MS-13, do you know who MS-13 is? I hope you're paying attention. MS-13, these gangs that are taking literally over cities here in America with the highest concentrations in Los Angeles, New York, and get this, San Francisco. Vicious. They exist for one cause, to be vicious, brutal, murderous thugs. There is evil in the world. Well, why is this? Well, Genesis 216 to 17, it started there. God said, okay. Uh, Adam, you can eat from all the trees. Don't eat from that tree. In the day that you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. And so Adam ate from that tree. That was disobedient. That was wrong. That was sinful. And as a result, God cursed the human race. He cursed the earth. And ever since the time of Adam and Eve, there's been God's curse upon the earth because of the sinfulness of humanity. And the sinfulness of humanity has been passed on from Adam and Eve to every other human being since for the last 6,000 years. And so the world is run amuck with sinful wickedness which starts and emanates from the human heart that's where it came from so all of this comes from genesis chapter 2 in the bible why is there so much bad and evil in the world because the world is cursed and people are evil because of the disobedience and a result of sin the sinfulness of humanity so the imprecatory psalms are a realistic picture of what's going on in the world that human beings they're out of control and god needs to bring justice to reign it in And it started in Genesis 2, and it goes from there all the way to the end of the Bible. And finally, Jesus has to reign it in himself. And he does in Revelation 19, verse 11, where he comes out of the sky from heaven in glory in a resurrected body as the almighty supernatural savior, warrior, judge of the universe. And he lands on planet Earth. And this is going to happen in the future, literally. Jesus is going to come again, literally. He's going to land on Earth, not as the gentle, meek, and mild savior. He is coming as... The warrior and judge to bring vengeance vengeance and condemnation of his enemies. That's the only reason he's coming in the future, initially. And it is described in detail in Revelation 19. He comes down and he slaughters his enemies who are on, on planet Earth. And blood is splattering everywhere. It's a gruesome picture. But it is righteous indignation. Spearheaded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Dealing with, once and for all, the problem of sin. And that's the theme of the Bible. And the imprecatory Psalms every once in a while are just little vignettes that give us a picture of the problem of sin in the world. And the only solution is God and his way through the Lord Jesus Christ. So these imprecatory Psalms, they are needed. They give us balance. They bring us back to reality. They give us perspective. They force us to hope in God and God alone and Jesus our Savior. And they also remind us human beings are not going to change. Oh, they're just going to get better. Oh, with time. Oh, if we just get more education and more money and more helps and more give outs, then everybody will become good and better and unified and we can have heaven on earth and utopia. No, that's a lie. Or this idea that we're going to waltz over to the Middle East and get the PLO and the Palestinians. Whose history is Islam and then back to. Esau, who hated Jacob, and back to Ishmael, who hated Isaac. And we think they're just going to shake hands today with the Jews. They've hated each other for 5,000 years. God said in Revelation 17 and 25 they're going to continue to hate each other and be enemies. We think, oh, we're just going to make a peace accord if we can just sit down and have them chat and talk, have a nice conversation over a glass of wine. It's not going to happen. That is a faulty view of human nature. That's a total misunderstanding of the Bible and history. That's a total, total ignorance regarding Hamartiology, the doctrine of sin that's in every human heart. Ain't going to happen. So I'll make a prediction. I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I make a prediction. There will not be everlasting peace between uh, the Jews and the Palestinians for any legitimate real length of time. Hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I just I read the Bible. And I see history. Maybe there's a little bit of a time where there's this feigned peace, but you know what that is? That's just a quiet time so everybody can reload. But they will re-engage. And that's totally consistent with the Bible. So the imprecatory Psalms, they complement the whole Bible. There is one consistent theme. Humans are sinful. God needs to reign in sin, and he's the only one who can. Number five. One of the things we can take away from an imprecatory psalm, because there are things we can't replicate because it's unique, we can pray like David in the sense that the main thing about an imprecatory psalm, it's a lament or it's a it's a prayer of protection. So the imprecatory psalms, they are cries for protection, and, and we can pray that way. We can pray to God for protection. God, save me. God, rescue me. God, help me. God, deliver me. That's how Jesus said to pray, Matthew 6. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Holy God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. You know, that's an imprecation right there. Thy kingdom come. God, your will be done on earth. Wow. A lot of people are going to suffer when that happens. Your will be done. Part of God's will is that sin will be eradicated. That will be bloody. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everybody will believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people who don't want to and will resist to the death. Thy will be done on earth. Think about that. And also deliver us from evil. Deliver us from not primarily the evil in my heart. It's from an outside evil. It's the devil. It is evil and wicked people. And that's how Jesus said to pray. Pray regularly, pray daily for deliverance from evil forces, evil people and evil Satan and his minions, which would mean evil, wicked people. And that is consistent with how David, we can pray for protection from God. God, you own me. I'm in your family. I'm one of your children. God, protect me. I rest in you. You're the only one that can protect me. I don't want to protect myself. I don't want to take personal retaliation and vengeance on people I'm not supposed to. So I entrust my entire life and my soul into your care and your protection. God, that's how we're supposed to pray. Deliver me from evil. I don't even have the resources to deliver myself from the evil in the world and evil people and Satan himself. So that's how we're supposed to pray. This is very consistent with David's prayer. God, protect me. We pray that if, when you become a parent, you, pr- you pray for the protection of your children all the time. That is natural. Well, you should. God, protect my people. Protect my child as they drive. Protect them from all the evil out in the world and the evil people. I have a sibling, uh, I have a, an offspring, a daughter who lives in San Francisco. Then I was studying and reading up on MS-13, who's taken over all the major cities in, here in America. And they are into murder, plunder, rape stealing and everything else and sexual trafficking. And the most predominant hot spots are Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco where my daughter lives. God protect my daughter from these evil, wicked people. Protect. When God does protect... David rejoices. He says, that, "Can you imagine this? Uh, it sounds kind of weird to some people." Verse nine: "My soul shall rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> when you take when you take vengeance and you wipe out my enemies, I will rejoice." That sounds to some people that is highly offensive. It's like, how can you rejoice in evil ever? How can you rejoice in the death of anyone? That is totally unchristian, totally unbiblical. And I'd say, well, not really. Again, it comes to context, context, context. David will rejoice when God takes rightful, rightful vengeance in His perfect timing. On David and Israel's enemies and they are the enemies of God and David will rejoice and celebrate And there are times and occasions where A righteous person can celebrate when God does take vengeance on evil people Read exodus 15 after God wipes out pharaoh and his army there's an entire song that moses wrote Rejoicing in the vengeance from God when he wiped out Pharaoh and his army, it's a, it's a song that Moses wrote Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh yeah. Let my people go or something like that. I'm not quite sure how the music went, but those are the lyrics are pretty close. And it was a time of celebration. And so Miriam, she's getting into it. She, Miriam is uh Moses sister. Woo-hoo! And she couldn't stop. Man, the song was over Moses. You know, he clears the band from the state and there's Miriam over there. She still, and she grabs a tambourine. She says, let's go girls. And she grabbed, this is literally in chapter 15. If you don't believe me, read this at lunchtime. And Miriam grabs a tambourine and her sister, her hallelujah sisters, and they just keep singing. And then Miriam writes her own song and she starts shouting and praising, hallelujah, God took out Pharaoh. Uh Uh-huh, give me an amen. She's celebrating. They are rejoicing when God wiped out their evil, wicked enemies. It's also in the New Testament, Revelation, chapter 14. In the future, when God wipes out evil, wicked, vile, Christian, or people who kill believers on earth, when God takes them out, there are even angels in heaven who are celebrating. Hallelujah. God, thank you. Hallelujah. Wipe them out. Take them out. When I hear the government or policemen takes out some vile, wicked, evil murderer or thug, like when that wacko guy tried to kill one of our congressman about two weeks ago who was on a baseball field We're shooting trying to kill all these innocent people and the, the police took him out and i was like praise the lord that's righteous indignation that's in the bible protection and then finally number six uh, <clears throat> the imprecatory psalm should shape our prayers So when we pray, we should be, our prayer should be informed by these themes and a, and a worldview and a mindset and theology that is thoroughly biblical. Give you three examples. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. That's during the tribulation where it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded in the, under the altar. And what are they doing? They are praying to God. What are they praying? This is in the New Testament. Believers in Jesus are praying to God for vengeance that he would wipe out his enemies who were on the earth. And God answers that prayer. I already went through Matthew 6.13. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and also God deliver us, deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from evil people. One thing that I neglected to say is, saying this is not personal retaliation. David isn't saying, God, give me permission to wipe out, kill uh, my enemies uh, personally. God, I want to take him out with us. He doesn't do that. This is not personal vendetta, as I said. Who does, David wants the proper channels to be done. Verse 5 and 6, David is actually asking the angel of the Lord to do it. See, he's asking God to do it through the angel of the Lord. David isn't asking for personal retaliation. It's a good reminder. And then finally, 1 Timothy 2, this is where uh, Paul said to Christians, Christians, you need to pray, you need to always pray, you need to continually pray for your government leaders. See, that's what you need to do. And what are we praying for? If you read that, those two verses carefully, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, what is it we're supposed to pray for the government leaders about, that they would be saved? It doesn't say that. Dear God, help all the pagan officials and the corrupt U.S. government be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't say that. It says, pray that you would use the fallen, frail, and, and fallible, sinful, compromised, secular government leaders that we have to do your good by preserving peace in society so that we can live our Christian lives in tranquility unhindered. Summary, God, I just pray, thank you for the government you've put in place. Now, God, please, we pray that these government officials would just have good laws and then follow through and enact the good laws for the good of society, not just Christians, everybody. That's how we're supposed to pray. But that is a form of vengeance because there are criminals in our society getting away with great evil and compromise. We need to pray, God, shut them down. God, invoke the law. God, apply the law. That's First Timothy 1 as well. The law is for lawbreakers. God, use the law. Reign them in. Shut them down. Romans 13. So you need to pray for your government so that we will have civility in our society freedom and peace for everyone so that all people are respecting and honoring their fellow man because every human being is made in the image of god so there it is there's our just brief overview of these rare psalms that we get to to talk about the imprecatory psalms and hopefully uh This helps you and added to your approach of how you do Bible study and how you understand the word of God. And now hopefully you can understand it in a a deeper, more balanced way. If you have further questions on this, please let me know. Come talk to me. Shoot me an email. Would Love to discuss with you. I can't ever I've never preached on imprecatory Psalms before. I've never actually heard a sermon. On it before, and I don't know about you, but I just found it to be very helpful as I read a devotional not long ago on it. And I thought, wow, this is this is very helpful. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And by the way, <clears throat> we started 10 minutes early, so subtract 10. Oh, good. I'm, look at this. I finished two minutes early. 1228. Perfect timing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege to come and, and be with your people, the saints. God, thank you for so many of these reminders in your word. How amazing you are, all your attributes, um, so diverse perfectly balanced, and you've made us in your image. We can identify with all of your emotions. Joy, love, jealousy, anger, yet we are flawed, you are sinless. So help us with your spirit to walk in obedience and keep our emotions in balance. Thank you for your love for us that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And we just pray that you'd be glorified in us. We commit this day to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.